Good morning. Um, one of the last times I spoke, we talked about believing loyalty. We were talking about the subject of baptism and uh, making that making that declaration and uh, choosing your side. And today I want to talk about uh, leadership in the kingdom and look at the Old Testament in the beginning to see what what was God's way of a fallen earthly kingdom, if we can put it that way. What was his what was his original kind of political system? How was he expecting humans to live? And uh, we want to look at that, and then we want to get further into after Jesus and what Jesus had to say about whose kingdom you belong to. Um, and how we live our life in that tension that, that this, is not, this is not really our citizenship. And it's uh, kind of where I'm going today. Um, our society is very divided. I think it's more divided, perhaps, than it's ever been. There's been other times, though, in history where it's been pretty divided. I don't want to make too much out of it, but the society is divided, churches are divided, politics and religion, religion and politics, families divide over this stuff, communities divide over this stuff. The reason people can divide over this stuff is because of the emphasis that they put on these things. If we didn't put the emphasis that we put on these things, people would not be so passionately uh, clinging to things. People are generally looking for a person and a way of thought to make a better world. They are clinging to these as a hope for the future. Now, as I talk about this, I am talking about society as large, but I also would like to talk about how some of the church buys into this too. And I can only preach to us in the church. How the rest of the world operates is their own thing, but I, I think that there's, they need to learn from this also. Um, people are very quick to feel, quick to speak. They need to feel, they need to feel validated in their beliefs. What we see more and more is people need to, they need to feel good about that. They need to feel like they're part of this progress or resistance or whatever they're feeling. And uh, both sides want and feel a need for a spokesperson. I think there is something in the human heart that desires that leadership. I think that was part of how we were created. Um, Adam, Eve, they found their leadership with God. They walked with God. They were used to having that input right there. I think that's just kind of how we are. Um, then there's also this need to feel in control and to be in control and feel like you have some kind of say um, and so we see these days, we see, we see followers are becoming very, very invested in picking sides and following things through, and it almost gets to a point of being cult-like, both in the church and outside of the church. Um, so as we look at leadership and we look at our divided society and we need to figure out, like, what does is, what is God desire for us? What, is God's, what were God's intentions with leading men? Uh, originally, and then what were God's intentions, you know, once he takes care of the sin problem with Jesus. And so that's, that's kind of where we're going. 
I have a couple pictures here to give you an example of, of how people are feeling about our leaders these days and this cult-like following that some of these leaders have. Um, here's a billboard in America that I find very gross. And knowing that there's people that cling to this, make the gospel great again, as if the gospel ever lost anything. The word became flesh, assigning a deification to this man. It's not just this side. Here's a painting someone did of him as the truth. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, joint heirs. That's gross. If these pictures don't make you sick to your stomach... All hail the God King. It's not a Messiah complex if he actually saves the world. This is where people are at. People make these things because of where they're at, because they need that leadership, because they've lost sight. It's it's not the intention for the world. Yahweh's intent, and we're going to go through this quickly, from the beginning... Um, he's going to lead. He would lead us. His original intention wasn't to have people placed over top of us. He created us with freedom. He created us to live together in peace with him making decisions. Um, He worked alongside human leaders, but still showed up. We can see that in Exodus. We can see that he's talking with the patriarchs. He's visiting with people. Back originally in the garden, that's the intent. Humans follow his commands, they live in peace, worship only him, and he would take care of their enemies. And we can see that here as we call, we look more at the, the, the Hebrew people and where he took the nation. He called them out of Egypt. Yahweh fought the battles for them. Egypt eventually bowed. He made a mockery out of the Egyptian pantheon. He leads them out of slavery. Uh, through the wilderness, The Red Sea, the Jordan River, cloud by day, fire by night. He was there with them. He was in their midst, leading them. He dwelt in the tabernacle to be with his people. He fought the battles with Moses. And we get Joshua and Joshua 5. He meets with some kind of pre-incarnate Christ, is what we would gather. Paul talks about it was Jesus that was leading them out of Egypt. It was Jesus leading them through the wilderness. So we see a warrior king, and he continues to fight their battles against the tilted odds. So all the way from the start, he's with them. He's taking care of them. He's doing things for them. That is the way of God's people. Um, Then they start settling the land. And when they start settling the land, we have this. Um... He tells them, finish the job, don't take on foreign gods, remain in peace and enjoy your land. And because Judges, the book of Judges is very, it's a very large book and to get through it, I'm going to play a video that gets through it in seven minutes that talks about this cycle with leadership. So Jonathan, if you could hit that, or do I just need to hit next? corruption of its bad leadership and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. 
But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now, the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a god, and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, 
violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them, he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore. And that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah, who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is a result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of First Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. Okay, so there you go. The quick synopsis. Um, so Joshua dies. This is what ensues. Now, during this time, God, Spirit of God, is empowering individuals. Yahweh is still showing up. Um, shows up to Gideon. Gideon doesn't even know what to do with that. You know, take your sandals off. All of that, it's God. Another thing to think about is when angels show up, Oftentimes, humans try to worship them, but the angels will tell them not to do that. Whereas in some of these places where it says the angel of the Lord, and this is a whole sermon on its own, when it says the angel of the Lord in the beginning, we have to believe that it's, it's part of the Godhead because the angel tells them to take their shoes off and worship. It's okay. You're on holy ground. I mean, the burning bush is an example when he shows up to Joshua. That's a whole different thing. We can talk about that later. But in all of this, Yahweh Jesus is still showing up and fighting for them. The Spirit of God is giving them the strength that they need. They still can't keep it together. They're becoming like everything around them. 
so they finally, well, we'll read the story here in Samuel of where they decide they need a king. And this is one of the saddest stories, I think, in the Bible because of something that Yahweh says to Samuel that makes me feel bad. Um, kind of sees, you get to see uh, the loss of friendship for him. And when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were the judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge like all the other nations. So right there, they just want to be like all the other nations. The whole idea of being a separate nation, of being Yahweh's chosen nation and being different, they were already rejecting it. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall sw- solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So at that point, Yahweh knows it's done. They've rejected. But to me, that's, that's super sad. Like he knows. And there's almost like when I read that, I kind of feel a sadness when I go with it. And so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations. And our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battle. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. And so they're going to invoke a type of leadership that was never intended for them. It was never intended for us to be ruled. And then you have a good king. You have David after Saul. Saul's a big failure. They pick a, they pick a king as best as they can based on human experience. And uh, Saul goes down the wrong path very quickly, just like the judges. And uh, then you get David. David has its moments, but David never 
stops believing and remaining loyal to Yahweh. And David finishes out at least. And then Solomon begins the end of that. So out of all that, all of what they wanted, they end up with one really good king. They get some okay kings after that, but they mainly get some, some real losers. And uh, the sin idolatry cycles begin after David again. And so now you're back in the spiral, like it said in the video. Just now you're in a spiral with the king. And it's going to lead to exile. And they're going to remain in exile for thousands of years. So, looking past that, they're in exile. The Jews are then waiting for their messiahs. I put the, the S there because there were some sects of the Jews that believed that there would be two messiahs. One to do the spiritual, one to do the political. And uh, then some thought he would do both. Um, they focus on the military political needs so much that they end up missing their savior. Going as far to choose the life of Barabbas over our Christ. And that was a choice that they made as a people. And what's interesting is one of the church historians believe that um, Barabbas' first name was probably Jesus. His name is Origen. He's an old church father. Whether that's true or not, it just goes to show that they had a choice between two Jesuses. They had a Jesus with the sword in the political movement, or they had a Jesus with the spiritual movement, and they chose the sword in the political movement. They lost a sense of the true kingdom of God. And that's just remarkable. It's the same decision they made in Samuel. Just this repetition, just this looking for a man, for wanting to belong like all the other nations. But we get Jesus, dead, risen, ascended. We have the Holy Spirit. We are told that we are part of the kingdom of God now. Sometimes it's referred to as the kingdom of heaven when Jesus is preaching in the gospels. And part of that is because he wasn't, they weren't, going to use the kingdom of God as it offended some to say that. Um, but they are the same thing. They refer to the kingdom of God in the Old Testament too. It's a couple times in there. Um, we are citizens of that kingdom. But what does that mean? Do we even belong to this world? So let's look real quick at when Jesus is answering Pilate to get an idea of this. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have, I, what have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate said to him, What is truth? So Jesus is laying out the concept of a kingdom. He lays it out earlier too, even before he's going to see his death. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on, he on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so that if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of life. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? 
For no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So this is not just about God and money. If you read previously, he's talking about the light in your eye and taking in the darkness. And then he goes right to serving two masters. Philippians 3, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and their glory, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I looked up that word citizenship, and it meant citizenship, just like we would think it. Okay? For though we, Ephesians 2, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Fellow citizens in a kingdom that is not of this world. Again you have heard that it was said to you, this be in Matthew 5, of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you, simp- for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. And here he is approaching the idea of taking oaths. Hammering home that you do not belong to anyone else. James 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Again, talking about hardships in this section. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So here he's talking about some persecution, some hardships. Tabitha just talked about this last week. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, taking an oath, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So there's a real emphasis put on you not belonging to another kingdom. You not swearing to another kingdom nation. You are gods. And in Acts 5, we start seeing, we're going to talk a little bit about when to question authority, 
know what not to question authority. There's a lot of stuff in the New Testament that goes both ways. I'm going to talk about that real quick. Looking at my timer here. Acts 5. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Okay. So the apostles were doing something bad. They were preaching the word of Jesus, and they were thrown into a prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of his life, of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door, but when we opened it, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you have killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose, rose, rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of his men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. He might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And this is the fun part. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So they took their beating, were told not to do it. They praised God for the beating, and then they went out and they did it again. 2 Corinthians 5, that seems like a little bit of civil disobedience. They were not following the laws. 2 Corinthians 5. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting them to the message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, quick word study on ambassadors came up with ambassadors. Ambassadors mean that you belong to a nation, right? I can't just go and be the ambassador for the UK. I am not from the UK. I am not endorsed by the UK. I can't just make myself something that I'm not a part of. But we are part of something, and therefore, we are chosen as those ambassadors. We are staked in that kingdom. That is our kingdom. He is our king. He is our hope. That's where this is going. Now, there are some verses in the Bible that leave people perplexed considering the law and governmental rulers. Um, This goes through. I, I put more, I always put more here because I don't like taking lines out of context and just preaching a line. So like if I were to take this line, I'd say people are worried about being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Institution ordained for people is another way it's translated. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So here it's kind of making it sound like we're supposed to just obey. I think that what it's saying, if you read from the earliest stuff, he goes from saying that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, to saying obey the human institutions set above you. I am to read that, and he's talking about abstaining from the passions of flesh and keeping contacts among the Gentiles honorable so that you speak as a witness. I think he's saying don't lead rebellions. That's how I take this. Other people, when they want to impose their will, and I've seen governmental user, uh, who was it? It was during some of the Supreme, the last Supreme Court appointments. Someone was, I think someone was quoting this and quoting Romans 13, that people just have to be quiet and take and trust their leaders to do everything for them because the Bible is ordaining through this verse. And just, it was just bad exegesis. They were just taking those lines. They weren't taking things in context. And that's what I wanted to cover with this. We're running out of time. So there it's about being an example. Be peaceful. You don't need to be thrown open rebellion. You're no longer part of that Jewish ideal where we're going through and we're going to overthrow Rome and establish our early, earthly kingdom. Jesus chose not to do that. So I don't, I don't see where we need to do that. don't see where we need to expect that we're going to have an earthly kingdom. Um, here's a famous one. Uh, giving to Caesar what is Caesar's concerning the taxes. And he looks at the coin. He says, the picture of Caesar on the coin. This is Caesar's coin, so give to Caesar what is Caesar. But give to God what is God's. What is God's? What belongs to God? What is he referring to when he goes through this? Us. That's what he's saying. He's saying the money is the money. Give it back to Caesar. And give to God what is God's, which is us. Which is our devotion, our life, our service. Um, then why this? Here's the trouble one. This is the one where everybody goes to. Um, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God, according to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. A couple ways to look at this. There's a couple of people that have a couple viewpoints on this. There's one viewpoint that Paul is urging obedience to the synagogue leadership. They believe that if you read in context, he's going through and that the Roman Christians were still meeting in the Jewish synagogue for teaching. So they believe that Paul is urging the obedience to the synagogue leadership as it is believed they were worshiping there. The sword can actually be translated as dagger also. So they're talking about the, the, the Jewish dagger um, for circumcision and other things. And uh, view two is that Paul is talking into a particular time in Rome's history where peace was fragile. This is the time under Nero. Um, like it says up there, I really haven't studied this enough to fully decide. I just know that this is, you got to weigh it with the fact that we just read Acts 5 and this is what the apostles were doing. The apostles didn't seem to be doing all of that. So I have to believe that this is a regional commandment uh, at a time for Rome and Roman citizens. But again, I haven't really studied this all the way through. But that would be the response to the things that I've been saying as they would bring up that portion. Um, I just know that Paul is at many times disobedient to commands, and he, then he willingly takes his punishment. Tabitha spoke last week on hardship. She went through that Paul paragraph where Paul is talking, and he's like, you know, they beat me five times, they shipwrecked me three times, they, you know, I was almost dead this many times, and he's just going through this list of the hardships of Paul. And you're like, ugh. So you don't experience those hardships from following everything. Does that make sense? Like, Paul's not going to be taken and imprisoned by Roman authorities, you know, if he's, he's following the law to a T. All that to bring us to this. Who is our hope? Who is our king? How anxious do you get over the political system of the world? How much does the political system of the world impact your thoughts and rile you up. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying be a bad citizen. I'm not saying that at all as far as the America. I love America. It's a wonderful country. Um, but this is not your home. And these are not your kings. And we can look back at those pictures at the beginning and I think that that sums up where we're at as a nation and sometimes where it seems like we're at as a church. And we see those deified, deified Trump things and the deified Obama things. There's no pictures for a deified Biden because I don't think anyone's going to go there. But I couldn't find them. I looked, but no one's doing that, so that must mean something. But we look at those pictures and that's where some people are at. And I want to know, Who's your hope? Who's your king? Who are you waiting for? 
Are you waiting for the second return of Jesus? Or are you waiting for the second return of Trump 2024? Who are you waiting for? Where is your hope? Do you need an earthly king? Or can you put your trust and hope in Jesus alone and expect God to fight your battles for you? Just like he did in the beginning of his plan, as he did through Exodus, as he did through Joshua and Judges, um, are you suffering from the disappointment of a man because some things maybe aren't going your way in the political sphere? Because you're giving too much emphasis to them. I'm not saying don't pray for your leaders. The Bible clearly says to pray for your leaders. I'm not saying don't vote. You should vote. You live in a country where you're able to vote. You should vote. But what I am saying is where is your hope? What kingdom do you belong to? Do you have split loyalty? That's all. I just think that I, you know, I originally came into this, I was going to do a sermon. I wanted to talk about the angel of the Lord and talk about how cool it was that God was coming down and doing that. And then I had a discussion with someone who was very upset with people in the church on both political sides and how much they're clinging to people. And I was like, you know, you're right. You know, this was never the intention and God provided a way through Jesus. We have a king who is alive and reigning, and we have to figure out how to view our life more and more as his. That's all. That's all I'm at with this. Um, I just hope that Jesus is all of our hope. I hope he's our top hope the number one hope. I hope that's what motivates us. I hope we're more motivated by, you know, regardless of where you're at on the political spectrum, laws being passed, I hope you're more voted, like the kingdom is is bigger than that. And uh, it's not to say again, don't pray, don't vote. Of course, pray and vote. But that's where I'm at. Just wanted to do some cheerleading for King Jesus in his way. Because I'm kind of getting depressed when I look at some people in the church. Not saying this church. Church as a whole. Let's put that there. So Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your godly leadership. We thank you for your perfect authority. We thank you that you've bound us in. Where we were once aliens and strangers, we are no longer aliens and strangers. We have found a family, we have found a home, we have found a place and a rank in you. We approach you as sons, we approach you as friend. And Lord, I just pray right now for Cold Springs and for other churches. Lord, that when when people are listening to God, and he comes down and he says, but the people have rejected me. They want to be like everybody else. I just pray that we don't hear that. I pray that we don't want to be like everybody else. And I hope that you don't find that here, Lord. That we want to be like the other nations. We don't want to be divorced from you, Lord. We want to live with you and you alone. And so motivate our minds, Lord. Help to change those those neural pathways. Help us to think kingdom. Think Jesus' thoughts. Be more and more turned over to you. And not worry. The sparrows don't worry. We don't need to worry. 
focus on the kingdom, lack of fear and anxiety. So Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would impart that on us. You would just come with peace and power. We love you, Lord. We thank you for that perfect plan. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.